1 Peter chapter 1. He's writing to people in the book of 1 Peter that were going through horrendous sufferings and trials and tribulations. He's writing in chapter 1 to encourage them. And he, he says, speaking of this trial that they're enduring, he says in verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, and I just want to ask you, as you're in the midst of trials, and I'm sure that probably nine-tenths of the people in this room this morning find yourself in that category. You're in a time of trial. Your faith is, is being tested. He says, being much more precious than of gold that perishes. Is that your attitude? Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he begins to introduce to us the appearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming, what Revelation chapter 19 is all about. Whom having not seen, ye love, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation and search diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And what I want you to see here that Peter is saying is this salvation that we have received. The angels desire to look into this thing. And what he says is even the prophets who were giving the prophecy concerning what Christ would do to provide our salvation. What he is telling us here is that the very prophets who were prophesying those things, writing those things down didn't understand what you and I understand this morning. That Christ's coming would actually be in two parts. They were writing things that had to do with the suffering of Christ. And the same prophets would also be writing about the glories that would be Christ. And they didn't understand that there would be a time-space in between, a time-space that you and I know is going to be at least, how long, y'all? At least 2,000 years, right? Because we're fast approaching that 2,000-year mark. And what he's saying is that even the prophets who wrote it down didn't understand. They couldn't differentiate between the suffering of Christ that would be His in His first coming and the glories of Christ that would be His in his second coming. And in Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see what the prophets were foretelling when they spoke of the glory that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, to really appreciate that. Let me take you back first to Isaiah 53. As Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53, and of course you would recognize this is the 
passage that the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was reading as he was cruising down the way in his chariot. And the Spirit of God moved Philip to that chariot and says, listen, go over and help this guy out. And so Philip goes up and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, are you kidding me? I mean, how could I unless somebody explains it? And he says, you know anything about it? And he says, you know, I think I could help you. So he climbs up and he preached unto him, what? Jesus, because Philip understood that Isaiah 53 was all about the coming of Jesus Christ. And look at what Isaiah prophesied concerning his coming. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem, esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And I think that every single one of us, we read that and we stand in awe of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his willingness to humble himself and to come to this planet to suffer on our behalf. And we stand in awe. But if you really stand in awe of this, you stand in incredible awe when you come to Revelation 19. And let's go over there.
Revelation 19, John says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You can already see. This one's different, y'all. This is going to be totally different. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Don't be afraid to say amen every once in a while in here today. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, Satan in human flesh, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And now, O Lord, would you, would you please help me not to do a disservice to your book? We have already seen incredible, incredible truth. Open our eyes, as David prayed, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. We ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking this morning at a tale of two comings. First of all, I want you to see this tale as told by God Himself. As told by God Himself, and I'd like to ask you to turn back to the book of Genesis. And of course, this is a group of people that is familiar with the plan of God that He created that man and that woman to have a love relationship with Him and to populate this planet with sons and daughters of God that would be a part of His eternal family and a part of His kingdom on the earth. And of course, Satan moved in to try to to move against God's holy plan. And he knew that in order to do that, he had to get that man and that woman to eat of the tree that God had forbidden them to eat. And of course, you know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a tree that was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband also, and he did eat. The very thing that God told them not to do, they did. They lost the image of God. They lost the likeness of God. They lost their relationship with God. And they lost the ability through, through their, the intimacy of their relationship 
to populate this planet with sons and daughters of God. They wouldn't be sons and daughters of God. They would be sons and daughters of Adam. And Satan had done exactly what he wanted to do. He had come against the kingdom that God was trying to establish on this earth. But don't you ever count God out. Because you see what Revelation 19 is all about? is all about God moving to set up His kingdom on the earth. That's what the second coming of Jesus Christ is all about. That's why it's the greatest event in human history. It's because Jesus is coming back to set everything aright. He's coming back to make this planet what God intended this place to be. But after that man and that woman sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God comes down into the garden and He says to the woman, now listen, woman, because of your part in this thing, here's the deal. Adam, because of your part in the, 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 this, this sin, here is what's going to befall you. To the serpent, he said, because of your part in this thing, this is what is going to befall you. But I want you to see what God said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He's speaking to the serpent at this point, And he says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman... And between thy seed and, and this is very, very key right here, and her seed, God says, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And right there, what God has just done is he has just told the tale of the two comings of Jesus Christ. In fact, what you have in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, first of all, is the virgin birth. Because you see, a woman has no seed. And so what is prophesied is this. God is saying, listen, Satan has stepped in and you've done this. But let me just tell you, there's going to be enmity between you and a woman, between your seed and the seed of the woman. There's going to be a virgin birth. And that one that will be born of her seed through that virgin birth, you will bruise his heel. And what that is, is a prophecy of the cross, what we just read about in Isaiah 53. And he says, but he will bruise your head. And what that is, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, Paul understood exactly what God was saying in Genesis 3.15 because what he said is that Jesus Christ will shortly bruise Satan's head. Now, his idea of shortly is kind of like my mom's, you know. I'm, I'm asking her, hey, mom, when are we going to go? Well, we're going to go shortly, you know, and about an hour later, you know, we'd go. That, Paul says, very shortly... Jesus is going to bruise his head. And we, that shortly has been 2,000 years right now, y'all. But you see, a day is as a 1,000 years. A 1,000 years is as a day with the Lord. So you see, it's just been a couple days for him. But it will happen. And God himself had, tells us by way of prophecy, Jesus Christ will be born into this planet by a virgin birth. He will die on the cross as Satan bruises his heel, but he will come again and he will bruise the head of Satan. So, a tale of two comings told by God himself. And then next, a tale of two comings is told 
by angels, as told by angels. And look with me, if you would, at Luke. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and this is the angel as he comes to Mary and begins to prophesy what is going to take place in her as she conceived of the Holy Ghost as a virgin and would give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And watch what he says to her in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. I mean, she's basically saying, what's up with this? And when she saw him, she, uh, or verse 30, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold... Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And all of that was fulfilled in his first coming. And he shall be great. And he was. Amen? And shall be called the son of the highest. He came into the streets of Jerusalem, and they hailed him as the son of David, the son of the highest. It was fulfilled in his first coming. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And I ask you, was that fulfilled in his first coming? No. Verse 33, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Was that fulfilled in his first coming? And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Was that fulfilled in his first coming? And what God is showing you here through this angel is there's going to be two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come as a virgin. He's going to lay his life down as a sacrifice. And then he's going to come again. And he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. So the angels are telling this. And I want you to see over in the book of Acts chapter 1 as another angel or a couple of angels tells the tale of the two comings of Christ. And of course Christ is about to finish up his ministry in his first coming in Acts chapter 1. He's pulled those disciples together and he's commissioning them. And watch what it says in verse 9. And when they had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men, two angels, stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, understand what's going on here. Jesus is with his disciples, and they are at the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden, Jesus begins to ascend in the clouds with angels, and he moves himself into heaven out of their sight. And what the angels say is this. Now listen, don't be all freaked out, because you know what? The same exact thing that you've just seen happen is all going to happen in reverse order. What's going to happen is heaven is going to open, and he's going to descend in the clouds 
with angels, and he's coming to the Mount of Olives just like you just saw it happen. It's all happening again in reverse order. Tale of two comings. Told by God himself, told by angels. Number three is told by Old Testament prophets. And we're here in the book of Acts. Go over to chapter 3. Old Testament prophets. Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching here. He's preaching to the nation of Israel. This is at a period of time before God has made the transition to the Gentile. He is still offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel at this point. And what Peter says as he's preaching to this group of people is this, Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now watch this. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Do you know what the time of refreshing is? You know how when you get refreshed, you, you, you know, you're out there working in the yard and you, you, know, you get a nice big gulp of water and you just, you just sigh with refreshment. You know when God is going to sigh, y'all, and be refreshed? When the Lord Jesus Christ comes out of heaven and He sets up His kingdom on this earth. And until then, you know what? He is not going to be refreshed. Let's go on. And He shall send Jesus Christ, verse 20, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. And this is what I was saying before. What Jesus is coming back to do in Revelation chapter 19 is He's coming back to settle the score, y'all. In Isaiah 53, the prophet prophesied the first coming of Christ. And let me just tell you, He was a suffering servant. He was humiliated. But that's not the end of the game. The end of the game is going to be when he sets the score right. When the times of restitution of all things, Satan has wreaked havoc on this earth as the God of this world, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, but God is coming back one of these days in the person of Jesus Christ to settle the score. The times of restitution of all things, watch this, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. And so many of you in this room know this. Others of you, you need to learn this. All of God's holy prophets, and I say all, not because I think this to be so, we just read it right there. And all of God's holy prophets have always been talking about the same thing. There's, there's an event coming, y'all! There's an event coming! It's the times of restitution! It's the times of refreshing that are come from the Lord! You know what they were doing? They were preaching about the second coming of Christ before He came the first time. In the book of Jude, just cruise over there real quickly. In the book of Jude, just to, to prove this point, not that it needs any proof because God just told us that that was the way that it was, but in verse 14 of the book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, just to put it in the time sequence there, the count them, seventh, from Adam, 
prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. You say, boy, I, I didn't know that He came like that in His first coming. That's because He didn't. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, was prophesying of the time that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. He's coming with ten thousands of His saints, verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. And God just keeps emphasizing all and ungodly, all and ungodly, they're coming down. There is coming a day when the score will be settled. Go back to another prophet, the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 9. And of course, understand, and we're so close, you might as well just look at it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah prophesies, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. And of course, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 to 23, it explains for us what Emmanuel is all about. It is God, what? God with us. And continuing in that same vein, go to chapter 9 and verse 6, speaking of this one who would be born... Of a virgin, it says, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And you know what? Everybody in this room that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, we call him by all of those names. Amen? Amen. We, we know him as all of those because of what he did when he came in his first coming. But the prophecy goes on, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. And I ask you, was that performed in his first coming? No, and in the same passage, and you see this is what Peter was talking about. The prophets didn't understand what you and I understand. We understand that between verse 6 and verse 7, there is a 2,000-year gaposis. They didn't get it. They thought it was all happening at one time. And look at the end of the verse. I love this, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He didn't perform it in His first coming, but you can rest assured. It is going to happen exactly the way that God said that it would happen. So, God says that all of His holy prophets have been talking about that time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, we see that in the same passage, He's prophesying those two comings. We read at the beginning this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, and we saw all about that first coming. But Isaiah clears off another place. And go over to Isaiah 63. In great contrast to what Isaiah himself had penned in chapter 53, watch what he pens now in chapter 63. 
It's incredible. And, and, and again, if you're an Old Testament prophet, you understand why they didn't, didn't see the difference. Because they're prophesying of two comings and they don't even know that they are. In, in Isaiah chapter 63, it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? And then he answers it, This that is glorious in his apparel. Traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Why, why does it look like you've been stomping grapes and you got all of that, that stain all over you? I have trodden the wine press alone. But you see, there weren't grapes in the wine press it was people and of the people there was none with me for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment for the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come What you need to understand this morning is that unless the blood that Jesus Christ shed for you when He died on the cross, unless that blood covers you now, and listen, when Jesus Christ comes the second time, He will be covered with your blood. I mean, I know that's heavy. And I know that we all start getting just a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about the vengeance and the wrath of God. It's the times of restitution, y'all. And listen, we've seen all the way through the tribulation period as it's been spelled out for us in the book of Revelation from chapter 16 to chapter 19 and verse 10. What we have seen is God over and over and over calling out to lost man, allowing him the privilege and the opportunity to repent, calling, inviting him to repent and to repent, and lost man flips God off, spits in his face, and blasphemes his name. And that's why when he comes in Isaiah 63, the vengeance is in his heart. And it's going to happen. I want to say it again. If in this life you are not covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, there will come a day when your blood will cover the Lord Jesus Christ and will stain His garments. So, this tale of two comings was foretold by God, by angels, by Old Testament prophets. It was also told by Jesus Himself by Jesus Himself. And, you know, there, there's just a, a zillion places that I could take you as Jesus would talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus in glory. The, my coming in glory. My coming in power. And we could go to all those places. I just want to take you to one that is just pretty significant in my book. Matthew chapter 17. <clears throat> 
Jesus talked about these two aspects of his coming. Now, obviously, in Matthew 16, as Jesus is talking here, he is in his first coming. And he asks a question in verse 26. He says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now watch this. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. And listen, it's what we've been reading about all morning long. It's what Revelation 19 is all about. And what is so wild is he is just... Look at verse 27 again. He says, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father... And then look at verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. In other words, they're going to see Him come in the glory of His Father. And I'm just telling you, that is a wild verse right there. Because Jesus is looking at that group of people and He was talking to them approximately at 33 A.D., And he says, you know what? There's some people standing right here that won't die until they actually become an eyewitness of my coming in power and glory. And here we are in 2001, and it hasn't happened yet. It's what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Now, you know what? This probably means that there is some people on the earth that are really old somewhere. No, it doesn't mean that. You see, we move into chapter 17. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Now now just stop for just a second. Do you understand what's happening here? He was transfigured. You know what he's saying? His figure was transformed. Transfigured. His figure was transformed. And you know what he did in the presence of Peter, James, and John? What he did is he rolled back the veil of his flesh that was veiling who he really was and is. You know who Jesus is? He is the power and glory of the Father. And he came to this planet, veiling that in human flesh. And he was transfigured before them, and he rolled his flesh back, and he was white as the light. It looked like the sun. You know why? Because he was the Shekinah glory and glow of God. And Peter, James, and John sat there and witnessed the glory of that would be His when He comes in His kingdom. They are the ones that fulfill the prophecy in chapter 16 and verse 28. They're the ones that were the eyewitnesses. And so Jesus Himself is saying, Listen, I'm coming again in the power and the glory of My Father and I'm going to reveal who I really am when I come that next time. So, 
The two comings are told by God himself, by angels, by Old Testament prophets, by Jesus himself, and also by New Testament apostles. By New Testament apostles. Now, go over to 1 Peter, and let's start with him. Let's make it 2 Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Okay, now, I know you think we just totally switched gears here and we've just moved into the New Testament prophets and that story we just talked about is, you know, that's, forget about that. No, don't forget about that. Because what Peter is talking about here is what we just read about in Matthew 17. Okay, now, unless anybody thinks that, I kind of think that that's maybe what the fulfillment of that was all about, just listen to what Peter has to say as we pick up in verse 16. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's what Matthew 17 went on to do as He was transfigured. A voice came from heaven, God Himself, saying just that, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount, the mount of transfiguration. And what He says is, listen, this thing that we're talking about of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not just some cute little story. This is not just some cunningly devised fable that you've heard about. You know what Peter is saying? I have already been an eyewitness to His coming and to the glory and the power and the majesty that will be His in that day. I've already seen it. I've already witnessed it. I'm an eyewitness. This is gonna happen and then he closes out we'll look at it a little bit later he closes out this epistle talking again about the second coming of jesus christ you're real close to the book of of james just cruise back to your left a little bit james chapter 5 another one of the new testament apostles as he writes in verse 7 ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton ye have nourished your hearts no, let's go to verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. And if you know anything about your Old Testament, the latter rain is a prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, verse 8, Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And then he begins to talk about Job. He says, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of of Job, and he just kind of throws this in in the context of the second coming of Christ. And then if you'll drop down to verses 17 and 18, he talks about this early and latter rain again, and he begins to talk about a period of drought where Elijah 
prayed and it didn't rain for a period of 42 months. And he throws the coming of the Lord in Job in this 42-month period that would precede the second coming of Christ. And what you begin to see, if you know anything about your Bible, is Job, which has 42 chapters, is a picture of the Jew in the tribulation period. And by the end of the book of Job, the nation of Israel, Job, has everything restored to him that he lost. And you know what? James is talking about the coming of the Lord in that period of tribulation that precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ. We could talk about John. You know what? There is a book in your Bible that is called the Gospel according to John. And you know what it's all about? It's all about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it just takes you through the whole kit and caboodle. We have another book in our Bible that is called the book of Revelation. And you know what it's all about? It's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what the revelation of Jesus Christ is? It's what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 19 when He is revealed for who He really is on this planet. And so John prophesies the two comings. And then, of course, there is Paul. And go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians for just a minute. 1 Thessalonians. And just so you'll know what we're doing, what we're doing right now is I'm laying all the groundwork to let you see exactly why Revelation 19 will be the times of restitution of all things. But you've got to see all of this before you can appreciate what we're going to see rather quickly as we move through Revelation chapter 19. But in the book of 1 Thessalonians, I want you to see what Paul does. What is unique about this book of the Bible is that every chapter ends with Paul talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And he's talking about us waiting for Him to be revealed out of heaven, just like Revelation 19.11 says. And look in chapter 2, and look at verse 19. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? And then chapter 3 and verse 13, To the end He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. In chapter 4, Verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And in chapter 5, in verse 23, he says, as he prays, in the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he begins the second letter to the Thessalonians, look in chapter 1, this group of people who had been, again, suffering and, and, and have lost their loved ones and are going through a period of great tribulation. Look at what he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, seeing it as a righteous thing with God 
to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And again, he talks about a time when God's going to settle the score, the times of refreshing, the times of restitution of all things. And now I want you to go to Revelation chapter 19. We've looked at the tale of these two comings as God Himself has spelled it out for us, as angels have done so, as Old Testament prophets and Jesus Himself and New Testament apostles have all talked about these two comings. And now I want you to look at the contrast of the two comings that we've just talked about. Let's talk about the contrast of His entrance to the earth in His first coming, and, and do recognize that His first coming, as First Peter chapter 1 talked about, those Old Testament prophets couldn't make a distinction between Him coming and suffering.
is the word that you see on your sheet. That's exactly what they called your Savior and my Savior. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11 says that he will be called in that day when he comes in his second coming, he will be called faithful and true. He will be faithful and true. When he came to this earth the first time, he was given the human name Jesus, just like the angel told Mary to name him, Jesus. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12, it says that he will have a name that no human can know. He has a name written that no man can know. You say, what is that name, Pastor? <laughs> no man can know it. So save your time. It's a name that's reserved for him that only he and his father know. When he came the first time, he was the Word made flesh. John 1.14 says, full of grace and truth. When He comes the second time, He once again will be called the Word of God. But this time, without the veil of flesh, He will be full of glory and judgment. And you'll remember in His first coming, Pilate mockingly put the title above His head. When He was hanging on the cross, do you remember? Jesus of Nazareth! King of the Jews. And he was. But he only got it partly right. Because in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, it says that in that day when he comes at his second coming, he will gloriously wear the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it says that it will drape across his vesture and come down his thigh. King of Kings. Lord of Lords. That's His name. His judgment. In His first coming, unrighteous and wicked people judged Him. Pilate and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas in John chapter 18. But in Revelation chapter 19, it says that when He comes at His second coming in righteousness, He will judge all the wicked. They judged Him the first time, and the second time... He will judge the wicked. And His ministry, He came as a suffering servant to take our unrighteousness and our judgment that we might know the peace of God. That's what the, that whole first coming was all about. When He comes the second time, as we've seen, He will come as a warrior king. And in righteousness, He will judge and make war. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, what it says is that He made peace through the blood of His cross. In Revelation chapter 19, what it tells us is that He's going to make war over that same blood. It makes peace now. But you reject that blood, and He'll make war with you as He comes in judgment. And then... Revelation 19 talks about His eyes. And to understand these eyes, you've got to understand those eyes as they were revealed in His first coming. You remember in Matthew chapter 19, children were brought to Him and He looked at them with tenderness. 
eyes of tenderness as he looked at those children. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, he looked out on the, the multitudes and he had eyes of compassion. In John 21, after Peter had denied him three times, he stood there on the seashore with him and looked him eyeball to eyeball with eyes of forgiveness. And then in Matthew 23 and verse 37, he looked over the city of Jerusalem and with eyes of brokenness. Said, oh, Jerusalem, man, how I wanted to just bring it to myself just like a hen does with her, with her, her chickens. That's, that's the way that I wanted to be with you. Those were his eyes in his first coming. But in Revelation chapter 19, what it says is that when He comes in His second coming, His eyes will be as a flame of fire. A flame of fire. He'll have eyes of vengeance this time. He'll have eyes of wrath this time. He'll have eyes full of judgment this time. And then His crown. Oh, He's the King of the Jews and every king wears a crown. And yet, when he came in his first coming, the only crown that he ever wore was, of course, the crown of thorns that they jammed down onto his head and the blood began to run down his face and into his eyes. And yet, Revelation 19 and verse 12 says that when he comes in his second coming, he will wear on his head many crowns. And you see, again, in that ancient culture, when a king would do battle and would be victorious over that other king, he would take his crown, and he would wear it. There are ten kings that set themselves against the Lord, and these are the crowns that he will wear because he will come and he will demolish them. And he will wear many crowns in that day. And then his robe. In John chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, his robe was stained with his own blood in his first coming. And we talked about this before from Isaiah chapter 63. But it says the same thing in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. His robe at His second coming will be stained with the blood of His enemies. And we've already seen from Revelation chapter 14 that when He comes in His second coming, what it says is that for a period of almost 200 miles, the length of Palestine, that the blood is going to rise up to the horse's bridle. And what that actually means is that for a period of... 200 miles, almost the entire length of Palestine, the blood will rise to the horse's bridles. Because he will come. And this is that whole thing of the wine press. It's a valley. And he says, it's just like the wine press. Jesus is going to come and he is going to stomp those people who have gathered themselves there like they are little grapes. And the blood will literally rise like that. And then his army. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, in His first coming, Jesus said that His kingdom was not of this world and that if it was, His servants would fight. And He ended out that verse and He said this, but now, listen, but now is My kingdom not from hence. But it's going to be. Now it isn't. And so My servants aren't going to fight. But we see in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, that He is going to come 
And when he does, he will descend with the armies of heaven. And the armies of heaven are verses 7 and 8. It's in reference to the church. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, part of the army is the tribulation saints. Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 lets us also know that part of that army is Old Testament saints. And Matthew 25 and verse 31 lets us know that part of that army is also holy angels. He will descend with the armies of heaven because his kingdom is about to be established on this planet, in this world. His mouth, in his first coming, he spoke blessing and comfort. And at his trial, like we saw in Isaiah 53, it's revealed in John chapter 19 and verse 9, he opened not his mouth. But in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it says, he will open his mouth this time to reveal the sharp sword of judgment and death upon the wicked. A king has a scepter. And you remember in his first coming, they brought him in and they had scourged him. They had blindfolded him. They had beaten him to a pulp. They had jammed the crown of thorns down onto his head. And because every king has a scepter, what they mockingly did is they went out and they got a reed. It's a common stick. And they came and they put it in his hand and says, Here, king! Here's the scepter you deserve. A reed. But in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it says when he comes the second time, his scepter will be a rod of iron and with it he will rule the nations. The nations ruled against him the first time, putting a common stick in his hand saying, here's what you deserve, king. The tables will turn, though, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. His demeanor, his demeanor. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that he dwelt among us as the word that was made flesh. He dwelt among us full of grace and truth. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it says that on this day he will tread the winepress, winepress full of fierceness and wrath. Fierceness and wrath. And there you have the tale of the two comings, the contrast to let you see that everything that they did to our Savior and that our sin did to our Savior... There's coming a time of restitution on this planet. I have the exact opposite take place, the glory that he deserves. But this passage also reveals a contrast of something else that I'd like for you to see quickly this morning. And that is the contrast of two suppers. The contrast of two suppers. We saw the contrast of the two comings. Now the contrast of the two suppers. And, of course, the two suppers are the marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in verse 9. And then another supper that this passage reveals in chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, what is called the Supper of the Great God. And, of course, we read about this earlier. Let's look at the contrast, first of all, in the calling. In Revelation 19, in verse 9, it says, Blessed are those called to this supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. 
In Revelation chapter 19, it reveals that those who are called to the supper of the great God will be cursed. Cursed are those called to this supper. The attendants at these suppers, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, those called to this supper, will be at the supper. They will be at the supper. The supper of the great God, those called to the supper, will be the supper. And the meals that will be eaten at these two suppers, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that which symbolized Christ's life and death, the bread and the fruit of the vine, this is the communion we talk about from John chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 26. That's what we'll eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You remember in Matthew 26 and verse 29, as Jesus ate with His disciples, He says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine until I eat it in the kingdom when it comes to this earth. That's what we'll eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That which symbolized His life and His death, what Jesus called in John chapter 6, His flesh and His blood. And at the supper of the great God, the flesh and blood of the enemies of Christ will be eaten by the fowls of the air. And then, and this is a, a mistake on your... Sometimes computers do weird things. The last contrast is the contrast of outcomes. Contrast of outcomes. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, you know what happens, y'all? The Lord Jesus Christ has His bride. And He finally gets the glory that He deserves. And we have experienced the full manifestation of the sons of God. We've got glorified bodies. We're on the earth as sons of God, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? This is what the plan was from the very beginning. It's the times of restitution of all things. But the outcome at the great supper of the great God... What's going to happen there, Revelation 19 describes, is first of all, the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And you know what's going to happen to them? They too are going to get exactly what they deserve along with, as he goes on to describe in Revelation chapter 19, along with everybody else who has not received the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what happens? The outcome of these two suppers is everybody gets what they deserve. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Antichrist, Satan in human flesh, the false prophet, and all of the lost people of the planet, as we've talked about before, the only people who don't get what they deserve is us. Because what we deserved was hell. And what we've become is the bride of Christ, giving Him the glory that He deserves. And so in Revelation chapter 19, there are some major, major contrasts that are going on. Now, now don't pack up, okay? Now listen. Peter said, you know what? Those Old Testament prophets, they couldn't make a distinction between 
Christ's suffering and His glory. Now listen, they couldn't make that distinction between His suffering and His glory. And you know what, y'all? We have a hard time making the distinction between our suffering and our glory. Because, you see, most of us are expecting that this Christian life thing, that we're just going to ride from one victory to another and one glory to another. And when suffering comes, we act as if some strange thing has happened to us. When Peter already wrote to us and he says, Now listen, when the trials of your faith and the sufferings come to you, don't look at it like some strange thing has happened unto you. Because he says, don't you understand? This is just par for the course. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, listen to what it says. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to what? To suffer for His sake. He's given you this privilege. And you know what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it's par for the course. Just like it was par for the course for Christ to come to this planet and in His first coming to suffer. It's par for the course for us in this life to suffer. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. He's saying, listen, don't forget that this is not the end of the story for you either. Yeah, you're going through suffering because that's the way that it's supposed to be. You are called to this. This is not something strange that's happening to us, y'all. But he says, listen, one of these days he's coming back and his glory will be revealed at that point and we will be glad with exceeding joy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to happen. If you live a godly life in this planet... In this life, you will suffer persecution. It's not, it could be, it shall happen. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, listen very, very carefully. It says that, that if we're children, children of God, then we're heirs. He says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And Paul says, For I reckon, listen now, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Listen, I know that you're going through suffering. I know that you're being persecuted. That is, if you live a godly life. And God says, yes, just like in my first coming, that's what you can expect in this life. He says, but listen, 
the suffering you're going through right now is not to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us when we receive those glorified bodies and we're on this planet as the bride of Christ worshiping and glorifying Him. The suffering is not to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, Listen, all that we've seen here this morning ought to have an impact on you. For every person that's here today and doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, what this ought to cause you to do is repent while you still have time. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, what he's saying is God does not get His jollies taking out His vengeance like we've seen this morning. What he says is He wants you to repent. And what he says is the only reason that He hasn't come thus far is because He's long-suffering. You know what He's been doing? He's been waiting for you. He's been waiting for you to repent. And for those of us that do know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that this ought to impact us as well. Not necessarily to repent because we've already repented. We've already turned to Jesus Christ. What he says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 is that for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that we've talked about this morning ought to cause us to live a holy life. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. He says, What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Listen. If you can see the second coming of Christ, the contrast between the first and the second, you can see the judgment that's going to unfold as it's represented in those two suppers, and you just walk out of here sinning the same sins, thinking the same dirty, nasty thoughts, living the same godless type of life, you've missed it. Peter says, because we understand what's going to happen, man, this motivates us to live a godly life. In Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, he says, as in the day, not in rioting and, and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and in envying. He says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He says, don't you understand? The day of the Lord's almost here. Because of everything that it's going to mean, it ought to impact the lives that we live. And I'm asking you this morning, believer in Jesus Christ, is there anything going on in your world right now that you need to bring before God and confess as sin and forsake this morning in light of the truth that we've seen from the Word of God today.
If you're here today and you, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, wow, you, you, you've seen it from stem to stern today. You've seen God with all the love in His heart become a man and pour His life out so that you might have a relationship with Him. Love like you could never comprehend. But just as certainly as that is true, you flip him off and you spit in his face. And he's coming. And it will be a day of vengeance. It'll be a day of wrath. It'll be a day of judgment like you have never imagined and like no preacher could ever preach the way that it's really going to be. And yet God says to you today, would you come? Would you repent while you still have the time? Oh Lord, I do pray that today people in this room that came here outside of a really... I pray, O Lord, that this would be the day of their salvation. That they would indeed come and repent. And I pray even now that You would speak to their hearts and convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And O Father, would You draw people to Yourself today. And Lord, as we begin our descent in the book of Revelation here in the next couple of weeks, I pray that Your purpose in laying these truths out for us might be realized in our lives and that because of what is going to take place in the future on this planet, that it would cause us to live holy lives in all manner of living. And I pray that today believers would get their hearts right with you and prepare themselves for your coming. And with our heads bowed, those of you that are here today and you've never received Christ, listen, if God is stirring in your heart today, this is a very, very significant moment in your life. The Bible says no man comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And when the Father is drawing you, by His Spirit, He convicts you of sin, His righteousness, and the judgment that's to come. And now listen, if right now that's what's going on on the inside of you, w would you come and respond to God's invitation to you today? You can't come unless He's drawing. And when He's drawing, there's conviction. So if there's conviction, He's drawing. And if He's drawing, it's time to come. Because you know what? There is no telling whether or not next week
he'll draw. And that's why the Scripture says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And it can be that for some of you folks in this room. Our service is about to be dismissed. And as it is, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room. We invite you to respond today. Listen, nobody's going to make you do anything if you come. We would love to show you today how you can leave with your sins forgiven in a relationship with God just from what the Bible says. We're not asking you to join this church. We're not asking you to, to be baptized. We're not asking you to go to catechism. We're not asking you to do anything other than what the Bible says, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be born again. And today, if you hear His voice, please harden not your heart. And, oh Lord, please answer that prayer for Your glory's sake. Amen.